Welcome back to What We Don't Know. I'm your host, Xander Schultz. I'm here with Phineas. Phineas, who are we chatting with today? Today, we have Bianca Tylek, the executive director and founder of an organization called Worth Rises. To describe it, I'm actually just going to read the first line of the about page on their website. Worth Rises is a nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to dismantling the prison industry and ending the exploitation of those it touches. She just sees the profit incentives in prison as being such a driver, like the economy of prisons being such a driver in our incarceration rates, in the fact that so many folks who are employed by the system or, you know, are are benefiting from the system's existence, if they're not outward advocates, the expansion of the system, they are blocks to the decarceration that a lot of the criminal justice reform movement would like to see. She spoke to how the prison industry interacts with capitalism and therefore interacts with commercialization and how it's all wrapped up in one, which we don't often think about, you know, totally. Prisons as a money-making machine. And it always has been. I loved her history of the prison system and how it has always been about getting cheap labor to make money or utilizing mostly black bodies to make money. Uh, Her history breakdown in this episode was awesome, and I'm really excited for folks to hear it. So I then will stop standing in the way of folks hearing it. (laughs) Let's get into the episode. Bianca Tylik, welcome to What We Don't Know. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me, Xander. How would you describe the problem you're solving? So there's an $80 billion industry behind incarceration and surveillance in this country. That $80 billion industry is preventing us from moving towards a world where we can uh, actually see safety and justice without needing police and prisons. That's the problem we're trying to solve. We're trying to dismantle that industry and eliminate the exploitation of people who have been incarcerated or their family members and the communities that have been devastated by incarceration. And I think when, when a lot of people hear about money in the prison system, they immediately go to private prisons. But I've learned from you that the private prisons are a, f- a fraction of what you're talking about. Can you talk about like where that, what that $80 billion covers? Absolutely. So the $80 billion is every single penny and cent that in large part comes in and out of prisons. But it doesn't even include actually what families need to pay in order to support their loved ones in prison. So for things like prison telecom and prison commissary and things of that sort. But if you take private prisons, private prisons make up about 5 billion of that 80 billion. Um, In fact, the largest part is actually salaries for people who are uh, working within that system. And so it's interesting, right, because people don't think about that piece of the puzzle. But that is also a stakeholder that has a financial incentive in this business, right? It's not just the private prison CEOs that make six million dollars, excuse me, a year. But it's the correctional officer that makes $30,000 a year, $50,000 a year, that's still fighting for those jobs, that's fighting to keep prisons 
options open. And so, you know, it, the industry as a whole has many, many, many different pieces. In fact, there's over 4,000 corporations that are involved in prisons and jails in one way, whether it's construction, architecture of prisons or telecom or healthcare, you sort of name it, there is a massive industry that is far beyond what we think of as private prisons. And I just want to say real quick is that private prisons aren't even necessarily the scope that people think they are, right? Uh, I sort of poll people all the time. And I get answers when I ask the question, what percentage of the system do you think is private prisons? I get answers as high as 100%, right. um, which is baffling when in fact private prisons only make up 88%. It's New York. It's okay. Um, it keeps the podcast gritty. I know. I'm like, the police are coming, you know, as we're having this conversation. This is what we're talking about. If you add police to that number, you get $180 billion um, that is spent on law enforcement in this country. The fact that the prison system is such a large jobs program in a lot of small town America is is super under discussed. And oftentimes, as you know, as you're doing the work you're doing, trying to shut down these prison systems, that is like such a large barrier. What are the best solutions to tackle like that incentive? Right. So this kind of all emerged in the prison boom of the like 80s and 90s, right? There were there was a prison being built every eight days in the U.S. for better part of the decade. Mm. And a lot of towns, in particularly rural America, were fighting for these prisons. Well, what research has shown since then is that, in fact, rural uh, economies that depended and moved towards that prison boom or used the prison boom in order to recover um, from lost jobs have actually seen slower economic growth than rural economies that went a different route, that either lost the bids for prisons or just you know completely turned uh, to a different industry. So the reality of what we're seeing is that this isn't actually good for communities, and it's also not good for the people who are working in this environment. These are not good jobs. Uh, Jobs in prisons and jails, contrary to what people might believe, actually have very high rates of suicide, um, high rates of domestic violence in the home, uh, all of these things. I mean, at the end of the day, prisons and jails are terrible and awful places, um, and they're awful places for everyone who walks through the door, um, obviously, to very differing degrees. And so the question is, like, how do we get people to understand that it's neither good for the economic position of your community, nor is this a healthy job that any one particular person person, you know, should um, have. And so we want to figure out how to organize with labor to say we want better jobs. And what are those jobs and actually working with, you know, governments to close prisons. And uh, at the time, you know, that we are closing prisons, that we also do some kind of job training and programs to move people who otherwise had jobs inside of prisons and jails to some other type of um, work. You touched a little bit upon the history where we built all these prisons in the 80s and, and there was starting to, you know, we increased the, the amount of people we were incarcerating, et cetera. Has profit in prisons always been correlated? Was there like an inflection point? I know the 80s in, in incarcerating so many people was a inflection point. Does the history go back further than that? And are we at some historical high today or how, how is it in comparison to, you know, its, its past? Great question. So, Prisons are inextricably tied to profiteering. In fact, that's, you know, what the modern day prison was an extension of slavery. And so for those who may not understand what that means or why, you know, we say that, take the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment uh, to the U.S. Constitution is the amendment that uh, sought or has been framed as abolishing slavery. But the reality is is that that amendment had an exception built into it um, that reads, except 
as punishment for a crime, mm-hmm. which is wild to think that in 2021, we still have an, our U.S. Constitution actually says that slavery is allowable so long as X condition is met. Totally. Right? The idea that there's any condition that suggests that slavery is now okay should really, you know, worry people. But when, what that did was it was an actual concession to the South. Because the South did not want to lose its labor force, it was very intentional to maintain that labor force. And so what that did was immediately after the passage of the 13th Amendment, they started to create what are called black codes, right? And these were laws in the South meant to criminalize black life. These were laws that only applied to black folks in the South and criminalized things like not having a job, having debt, gambling, literally, I mean, sometimes being outside, right? Like at at certain hours, right? Like there was so many things and these laws only applied to black folks and it allowed the system to incarcerate black folks in the South and essentially say, well, now I'm going to label you quote unquote, a criminal. And now I'm allowed to enslave you. Right. And in doing that, what that actually meant was that what we saw was from pre-the pre 13th Amendment of the Civil War, population in prison that was 99% white folks, to, you know, within a decade after the Civil War, to 99% of people in prison being black folks, mm. thanks to these black codes. And all of those folks were then leased out um, through a practice called convict leasing. And convict leasing um, was this practice where prisons and jails would essentially lease people who were convicted in their system, in their prisons and jails, back to corporations and other private sector players, and namely, actually, the very plantations that were forced to free people. Mm. And in some cases, you actually had the very people that had been freed from that plantation back working in chains through the convict leasing model back on those very same plantations. And that model was ironically actually even more profitable because what those plantations were doing was they were leasing people. Right. If somebody died, they would get a new person the next day with a lease contract with uh, the state or, or the county. They weren't required for the care of folks. They, there was no you know, cost to sort of people's death, which is um, a remarkable thing to say. And so what that created was this system that allowed for our prison system to be entirely rooted again on creating labor for the South, for plantations, and uh, for the private sector. And in fact, uh, a lot of coal mining, a lot of uh, railroad um, system was built uh, using that convict leasing model. And, you know, by the late 1880s, you had states like Alabama making three quarters of their state revenue off of convict leasing from the private sector. Wow. And that's what brings us all the way into today, right? And we continue to see that that exception continues to exist. Our governments continue to be subsidized by incarcerated people. I mean, take COVID, right, where we saw incarcerated people all over this country uh, working for pennies an hour to manufacture PPE that was needed, like hand sanitizer and gowns and masks, totally. many of which like, didn't have access to that same type of protection, even though they were in some of the um, most dire uh, environments during uh, COVID and still are. So this idea of profiteering started at the very root of today's carceral system and you know, has evolved in many, many, many ways in the century since, but you know, still holds on to those deep roots uh, and many of those same tenants. 
When was the first time you got introduced to this industry? Like uh, the understanding of, of this industry, it, how much of a catalyst it is in our prison system. And then what was the journey like between like this being flagged for you or you, you coming into contact with this reality and like you, you deciding, all right, this is my, it's now my mission to tear this thing down. Being passionate about criminal justice work has been a feeling I've had since I was very young, right? Um, as a person who found themselves uh, dealing with family courts and juvenile courts and all of that, um, and on probation as a, as a young person, and then seeing some others around me facing the same system with, with more dire consequences, felt really strongly about this system and the injustice of this system. You know, my path sort of... Uh, deviated a few different times like any young person. And, you know, I ended up working on Wall Street for a number of years, which is uh, always a, a surprise to a lot of people um, who know me, obviously, in this uh, world. But I, I spent four years um, at, you know, many of your major banks. And I saw, you know, a lot of what corporations do and their language and their uh, vulnerabilities. And I, you know, learned essentially a lot of skills to to build companies, right, to help companies succeed and, and extract more and more from our economy and our people. And then I left very intentionally, knowing I was going to go into criminal justice work and went to, you know, law school, um, came out and, you know, started to explore these different questions of financial incentives and who's incentivized to do what in the system and, you know, where corporations are getting in the way. And I had a lot of conversations with different advocates and kept hearing it's capitalism, right? A lot of people sort of like shrug their shoulders, toss their hands up and totally. say, well, what are we going to do about that? That's so ingrained in American culture that there's no way to unwind it. And I started to think, well, but hold on, there actually are like corporations are not infallible. And there's actually ways to really pick at their own vulnerabilities. You know, I've seen companies crumble, right? So like for other reasons. And so I started to think as I was having these conversations in 2016 and 17, that can't be the answer. The answer can't be we there's nothing we can do about it we're going to let these corporations keep uh exploiting our folks lobbying campaign financing doing all these things that get in the way of transformational change that many of our comrades are leading in the movement and you know i thought i i developed a skill set to build companies i could use that same skill set to dismantle them and that became yeah the goal what's that look like today so you, you decide all right this is my this is my mission i'm out of law school i, I worked on wall street i have all the tools and then you start what is eventually called Worth Rises. I, f I forget your first incarnation, what it was called. It was longer. There was an acronym. The involved. Corrections Accountability Project is very long. <laughs> um, so so you, la you launched that, I think, three years ago. And so, you know, you've had some big wins in between now and then. I mean, I remember the New York phone calls win and then San Francisco that followed it. And, and I'm sure I'm missing a lot, but in terms of San Diego like, just happened last week, I, I'd love for you to talk us through like one of those wins. Sure. So I think, you know, the best example of the work that we do is really in prison telecom. And one of the things that we say is kind of the bread and butter of our work is that we work to lead sort of coordinated education policy and corporate campaigns, right? At the end, you have to do all three of those. And so we had our biggest win um, back in 2018, uh, just because it was the first, it marked a real change and shift in policy when we helped lead the campaign 
to make phone calls entirely free in the New York City jail system. Um, so it became the first correctional agency in the country to pass legislation to make phone calls entirely free. And that legislation saved directly impacted communities $10 million a year and increased communication by nearly 40% overnight call volume just like jumped and you know we heard incredible things obviously from everybody being able to communicate with their families but we also heard that like social worker lines were like blowing up right like all the things you want to hear when you're like oh like communication might actually like help and save our communities as we know it does but we really want to demonstrate and so you know while we've been driving for these policy wins uh, which we're now seeing active campaigns in many other jurisdictions uh, we were also calling out those that were preying on folks. And so one company in particular was a company named Securus. Securus owns 40% of the prison telecom market share. Um, in fact, 90% of the prison telecom space is owned by just three companies. All three of them are owned by private equity firms. And so Securus was owned, uh, or is owned, I should say, by Platinum Equity. Platinum Equity is in turn owned. Uh, the CEO and founder is Tom Gores. Tom Gores is a billionaire based in uh, Los Angeles, who also is the owner of the Detroit Pistons NBA team. And so we've been going after Tom, Platinum, and Securus for now uh, years. And I would say that you know, a lot of folks kind of before us did a lot of the targeting of Securus. And what we learned was Securus doesn't care. Securus has no public vulnerability. Right. Uh, and so that's not how you target a corporation like that because it's largely privately owned and it doesn't, it doesn't have vulnerabilities to public exposure. So you can demolish it in the press and it doesn't have any impact on their business on how much money people are making. It's not a publicly traded company, so their stock doesn't take a dive. There's no one who owns it. There's a CEO in charge who doesn't really give a shit as long as the people who own it don't care. Exactly. And so yeah. you have to figure out, well, then what is the vulnerability? In the case, in their case, it's their private equity firm because private equity firms do have vulnerabilities. They have investors, big ticket investors. And guess what? Most of those investors are public pensions. They have an accountability to the public. And so it is by targeting that. And so what we had to do was we had to make Securus synonymous with platinum equity. We needed to make sure that when the media covered Securus and the issues and the, the harm that Securus caused, that they always and forever would mention platinum equity. And, you know, better yet, mention Tom. Because at the end of the day, you want to understand, you need to understand that corporations are not these big institutions that magically make decisions. People make decisions. And there are people right. at these corporations that make these decisions. And so that's what we started to do. We started to target Platinum. We went to their investors and we won time and time and time again. And that's just one vertical, right? Like prison phones is one vertical that you're, you're focused on now, but you're focused on other verticals as well. What are the top verticals you focus on outside of, outside of the phone system? Yeah, great question. So we actually look at the entire prison industry in 12 distinct sectors. Uh, and that ranges from telecom and healthcare to construction and like transportation, right? Telecom has been a big focus for us over the last few years, but we are also really interested in financial services. Those are things like money transfers. Prison labor and programs is uh, an area that we are really interested in. Um, namely, you know, I think addressing that exception to the 13th Amendment that I mentioned earlier, we are actually looking 
looking at introducing the 28th Amendment, uh, which would eliminate that exception clause and abolish slavery once and for all. And we're working with our partners at the Abolish Slavery National Network, where I sit on the core team. I feel like we could do a whole podcast on the 28th Amendment. I did not know you were working on that. Not surprised. What would immediately change if that amendment was passed? So the reality is any amendment to the U.S. Constitution in large part needs time to actually become reality. So think, for example, of the 14th Amendment that created equal protection rights. Nothing actually changed the moment that that uh, amendment got passed. But it became, it created a right for people to fight. Right. And so what the 28th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution would do is it would abolish slavery for good. It would you know, make it very clear that there is no exception. There is no condition. There is no circumstance. There's no scenario in which we as people in this country say slavery is OK. And under that understanding, how does our current economy and network and practice of prison slavery exist? And you then, you know, sort of leave that to the courts to decide. If you're as successful as possible, say everything goes your way over the next 10 years and we're looking back and we're celebrating your achievements, what is true about the world in 10 years? If we're successful in everything that we want to do, I want to be I want to be both ambitious and careful, right? And that's to say we focus on a very specific piece of the puzzle, which is abolishing the industry. And we believe that if we can abolish the industry, then the work of our comrades in this field can move, right? Then people who are working to legalize drugs can move, work to legalize sex work, work to reduce sentencing laws, right? Work to defund prisons and police. Like all of that stuff can move because the financial actors and those with financial incentives are removed from the equation. And so what I would love to say is, whether it's in 10 years or, or longer than that, that like when, you know, we are successful in everything we want to do, we have abolished, you know, prisons and police. What I want to say very clear is that that won't happen without the intersectional work with our comrades. So we will do our part. And then we, um, you know, are in a blessed place to be working in community with organizations that are, you know, hopefully their work can move faster if we can move some roadblocks out of the way. All right. So we're going to get to a couple quick hitters. So like one or two sentences on each of these, and I'm going to give you the floor to say whatever you like. Sounds good? Okay. All right. I, I will try. All right. What's the most impactful book you've read lately? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I think this is going off of like the, the last comment that I was making, Prison by Another Name. And it's all about how we're recreating our carceral structures in our communities um, with these mm. Uh, quote-unquote reforms that are not actually going to free our people. Who's a change maker you've been inspired by recently? I'll probably repeat an answer I can imagine a million people have right now, but Miriam Kaba. I, I mean, I think that, you know, for folks who are thinking about building a safe and just world without police and prisons, uh, you have to be, yeah, aligning yourself and, and reflecting on folks like Miriam who... Um, are really leading the charge in that work of creating a transformational world. You're doing a lot, <laughs> which is an understatement. What habit most helps you do what you do? Well, that's a terrible question. Because uh, <laughs> I'm like, I don't sleep. <laughs> I'm like, I have no <laughs> it habits. could be that. I, I like the transparent one. It's like, just like to have a sleep pattern that ensures you'll not make it to your 70s, but you'll do a lot in between now <laughs> yeah, and let's then. Just say I'm trying to change all my habits because I think sustainability is important. <laughs> yes, my current plan is how do I figure out a habit to get to seven hours of sleep a week? 
I mean, a week. See, this is my problem. A night. <laughs> All right. We're, we're at the end. You've made it. I want to give you the floor to say whatever you would like to share. Well, I think we covered a lot, right? And I think that I don't have anything more to share on the topic other than to say I hope that people dive in and learn more. I think the reality is that we know very little about the prison industry. And we are doing our best at Worth Rises to help people understand and learn more about the prison industry, to expose more of those inner workings of how government cooperates with the private sector, to, you know, exploit our, our folks um, and our communities. And, you know, we hope people dive in to learn that. And so right now we have, you know, we have a curriculum available on our site that is like self-guided that people can pick up. It's a 15-week curriculum. You can do it as fast fast or slow as you'd like, but it includes readings. We have, you know, a, a detailed report that's very accessible that tells stories, but also tells data. Like it has all those pieces to understand what the prison industry really is. We have a discussion guide that helps you think through what are some important questions, how you should be thinking about uh, some of, you know, these issues. We, for every single sector, we have a 60 second video that if you do nothing else, Take 60 seconds to learn five facts about equipment in the prison industry or healthcare in the prison industry. And so this is all accessible on our site, and we hope people will lean in and they will learn. And then, you know, once you've learned or in the process or as you're going to jump into the work, uh, sign that petition, make that phone call, send that email to the legislator, donate your $10, whatever it is that you can do to support uh, the work, you know, support it. And people can follow our work on Twitter and Instagram at Worth Rises and uh, show their love there. All right, Bianca Tyler, thank you for coming on the show. Really appreciate your time, your work. As always, I'm here to help in whatever way I can. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Xander. Thank you for listening to What We Don't Know. If you're looking for more content like this, you can head over and be a supporter on our Patreon, patreon.com slash WWDK. You can also follow us on social. We're WWDKpod on Twitter and Instagram. I hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. All right, take care.